This episode of the Better Every Shift podcast is brought to you by Lexipol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Now let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Better Every Shift podcast. My name is Aaron Zamzo. I am your host. I'm a firefighter training officer in Madison, Wisconsin. And with me, as always, is the captain of this uh, crusade, the editor-in-chief, Janelle Fasquette. How are you today, Janelle? I am doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I feel a little um, dumber than normal based on who our guests are. We have probably some of the smartest people in the fire service and by the way, two people who I have to blame for studying hours and hours of new material for my promotional exams, but very well worth it. We have Craig Weinshack and Keith Stakes with us today, both from UL. Uh, we're going to talk about research. We're going to talk about application, and uh, we're going to see what kind of good things they're developing there. Um, how are you doing, Craig? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having us. Yeah, you guys uh, are very busy, and we'll get into that a little bit, too. And over there is Keith. How you doing, Aaron? Good, buddy. Hey, congrats. You just uh, won FDIC Instructor of the Year. Um, congratulations on that. How was that experience for you? It was good. It was a little overwhelming. You know, uh, the people that know me intimately wouldn't say I'm the most social butterfly, so it was a little bit taxing, but uh, it was good. Appreciated the recognition and uh, certainly want to keep moving forward with it. Well, well, we'll we'll mention a little bit. So you you're obviously deserving of the instructor of the year, but you've you've been a, a research engineer with UL's Fire Safety Research Institute. You're a fire protection engineer uh, with expertise in in the study of fire service tactics, fire safety, fire ground operations. Uh, you're a battalion chief with Bethesda, Chevy Chase Rescue Squad in Maryland. You're uh, you're also on the editorial board here for Fire Rescue One. Uh, thank you for doing that. And, um, and, and again, you just, you're, you're the instructor of the year. Um, so congrats and thanks for being here. Um, with us, we also have Craig, Craig, Craig Weinshank, and I've been practicing that and I knew I was going to have a little problem with it, but Craig is also, you're also a research engineer with, um, FSRI and you've, you've studied a lot of stuff, man, on firefighter compliance, changes in SOG. Um, the impact of forced ventilation on uh, room scale fires, fire dynamics and residential structures. Uh, you're a developer of NIST Fire Dynamics Simulator uh, version six, uh, and, and you've used that to, to study fire dynamics of fires um, that have resulted in LODDs and injuries. And, and so both of you guys are extremely, extremely busy. We appreciate your time. And so let's get into it. So what are you guys, uh, we have some brand new research out and and Craig, do you want to just start and summarize a little bit uh, of of what what the newest uh, instructional is and the newest research that you guys just just uh, launched? Uh, certainly. So um, we just launched the uh, training course uh, complement to our single family, single story residential uh, projects. So back in uh, 2020. Uh, we conducted a series of 21 full-scale experiments in about 1,600 square foot ranch style houses. Uh, we did so with a project technical panel of about 21 firefighters from around the country. And uh, weirdly enough, did so in the height of COVID. So it made some, some, some of that experimentation a lot more challenging 
you know, bringing folks on, on site became a, a much larger lift, a lot of social distancing and things. Yeah. Um, but we were able to, to, to carry out those experiments successfully. Uh, we released the reports about a year later and, um, you know, just kind of got to our, our training course, which now puts all of that work, all of the hours from, from the FSRI staff and the tech panel and such uh, into an interactive course to, to better um, communicate the findings that we, we found or, or the results that we found from, from the project. And you guys do a great job with, um, with all of your instructionals, by the way. Um, and if, if somebody's listening and have, has never done one or participated, um, Keith, how do they take advantage of, of those trainings that you guys have there? So we have a what's called Fire Safety Academy. That's where you can log on <clears throat> basically into our learning, learning management system, create an account uh, either as an individual user or as your department. So there's different levels within that that you as a training officer uh, could log in your department and assign that uh, coursework to folks uh, or take it individually yourself. But we put together a training project at the culmination of uh, all of our work. Um, so everything going all the way back to when we first started studying ventilation uh, up through now our most recent release on search and rescue. And uh, it really does a good job of trying to break down uh, with a little bit slower pace than how uh, Craig or I might talk in a presentation uh, uh, with some good visuals and good narrative to go along with it to try and give you guys what you need to basically take it to the streets. Yeah, you you truck, I, I like to say you, you, talk, you talk truck guy language a little bit on these, which means... There's a lot of pictures, there's a lot of videos, and then there's actually a lot of, of, of application. So now this, this most recent research, Keith, as you're going through it, what, what are the biggest things that you want everybody to take from this? All right, let's see how, let's see if we can get this entire three-year project into a couple sentences. Yes. So <laughs> uh, we're talking about search and rescue in single family homes, right? Um, specifically single story. Uh, we're going to look in multi-story coming up here in the coming years. We expect a lot of those conclusions to carry forward, uh, but to keep us bounded, right? Residential fire environment, single story, single family homes, search and rescue. So if you need to commit to a building prior to suppression, so you're arriving in a search capacity without water, or that's not your designated duty, uh, and you have to occupy that structure for the report of a trapped occupant, things you need to consider pre-water are isolation, compartmentation, and then ventilation if isolation occurs. So breaking that down a little bit, if we need to go and enter the structure, we need to consider whatever our entry point is uh, as a new flow path established to wherever that fire is gonna be located, right? So if that vent is already open and we are entering through an open doorway, we need to consider closing that behind us. It might be a little unnatural to enter in the front door of a building without a hand line and close the door behind you, but that's safer for you and for the occupant than to leave it open. Closes that floor uh, path, right? Stops yep. that floor path. And as you start to move about the structure, then conducting that search, uh, compartmentalize every space that you come to. If that space can be compartmentalized, go ahead and ventilate it. So this is kind of this middle gray area where, you know, we've had some swings in the research over the years right, where it's gone to, hey, exterior water is this new great thing, do it on every fire you come to, right, and now we kind of have more of the whole picture, and it's like, well, there's a time and a place, so, you know, we used to go under the notion of, you're going to go to where the fire is, you're going to search away, and you're going to vent as you go, right, 
the vent as you go piece is what we want to talk about here. It kind of swung the other way and said, don't ventilate as you go, right? Because introducing ventilation is a bad thing. However, we have the caveat now of isolation. If you're moving down the hallway in a residential structure and you were able to enter in a bedroom and close the door behind you, your best method to not only search that space but improve survivability in that space is keep the door closed and open the window, right? So if you've got the door closed and the window opens, really you don't even need to search it. The space is gonna clear out itself and you can move forward, right? So your pre-suppression moving about the building is isolate and then ventilate. And then the last piece to throw in there is that includes the fire compartment, right? If that fire is within a room that you can confine it to that, whether it be the doorway to that room or even some of those tactics you see out there of taking a door off and putting it across the fire room door, that will have a tremendous impact on conditions elsewhere in the building. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of pause there. That would be the first thing, right? So pre-water, isolate, then ventilate. Perfect. So now, Craig, you you, how would you, you know, as a as a department, you're now you're listening to this, you're a training captain or chief, and you're like, okay, how does this apply to possibly changing any SOG or or at least addressing any SOG? Uh, I think one of the, the things that might come up common from, from both Keith and I for the remainder of this, this discussion is going to be training. Um, so if you're going to start to implement change on, on the fire ground, and so if you're not used to entering through a window or you're not used to entering, entering through the door and what that's going to look like in terms of how you might search and isolate, it's get out and start training. Um, know how long it's going to take. Know what communication cues you need to uh, relay back to your other crew members, to your IC, um, because that's the most important piece. Um, we worked with the technical panel throughout this project. We had them do a series of time to task experiments and we timed them to do forcible entry. We timed them to do, uh, some occupant drags, whether they were dummies or people, uh, to get time for how long it might take them to rescue. And I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, uh, one of the big pieces we found from all this time to task data was that it didn't necessarily matter how old the firefighter was, how tall they were, what their uh, height or weight was, right? What their age was, their years of experience. The biggest single indicator of performance was how often they trained on the tasks that they were performing. So if you're good at your craft, um, you know, that's gonna overweigh a lot of these other just what we would perceive as physical or experience-based um, and not necessarily experience of the task, right? That goes into the training component. It's just, oh, I've got all these years on the job, um, but what does that actually mean? Um, and so it's it's those folks that recently did training uh, on those particular tactics far surpassed everything else. And so when we talk about this as you know potentially changing tactics for a fire department, it's you've got to go out and train on all these things. You know, it's not like oh, we're going to make a policy change and then you know the next fire we're going to implement it. Um, and so that's the biggest piece is, is getting crews comfortable with, with any change they're, they're going to make. And then, um, you know, making sure that IC is aware how long it should take for these folks. So if you do make that command, all right, well, if I'm not hearing back from so-and-so that this task was complete, now I need to be more proactive in terms of figuring out what's going on. Because if, if we expect something and then the, the reality isn't matching, we need to know that we, we probably got to make a change in our approach on that particular fire. Yeah. And, and I kind of set you up for that. Cause I know you guys, uh, uh, well, like I've, I've watched a lot of stuff and, 
And you guys don't necessarily say, hey, this use this and change your SOGs. You're saying, use this as a tool. Take this data, take this information, and, and then start, like you were saying, start to do drills, start to train on it and see what's actually best for your department, right? And so, Keith, I'll go back to you as a, you know, as a, as a, a, a battalion chief. Um, how do you use this stuff and how have you trained because of this? And, and what is this kind of, from, from you, how have you, um, you know, any particular drills that you've all of a sudden said, hey, this is a great thing to do because of what we just saw? Sure. So pertinent to the fact that uh, my department is the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad, our job on structural fires showing up on a, a heavy rescue is search and rescue. So in our departmental SOG from Montgomery County Fire and Rescue, uh, that is our function on the fire ground. So certainly this project is the most relevant uh, for our folks specifically. Um, but that gets down not only into their initial training and qualification as a firefighter on the apparatus, but then basically continuing ed and, and company level drills to focus on things like how long does it take us to ventilate a window and get inside of a space? How long does it take to uh, search a rough 10 by 12 bedroom? Is that better done by one person or two person? Are we conducting an oriented search such that we're going to have the officer remain at the entry point, whether it be a door or a window with a thermal imager, kind of guide that person throughout maintaining watch on fire conditions and then moving on? You know, there's a lot of variability and complexity into it, but we try and boil it down to a specific task. So go through all the drags, do them across different services, do them both with dummies as well as uh, actual people, um, both just in regular clothing as well as in uh, PPE and SCBA, uh, and really try and drill down to those times. You know, how, how quickly can we do this? What's the most effective way to do it in terms of uh, both technique as well as number of personnel? And, uh, and then carry that forward out when they go on to calls. And then start to look at maybe your policies and SOGs after you evaluate the research, how, how everybody applies and is doing with it, and then down the road, right? Like, don't sure. make a drastic Sure, and the nice thing about um, the, the way the structural firefighting policy, if you will, is written in Montgomery County is that uh, it's meant to be broken. Uh, so as long, there's guidance there for when folks need it, but if you need to perform an action that is outside of that SOP, it needs to be deliberate. You need to be able to defend it and you have to communicate it. And if those three things are done, considered and performed, basically the fire ground is yours, if you will, in terms of being able to make a on the fly decision and being able to critically think with what you're presented with to change course. Um, and you know, in terms of physically the search and rescue aspect, Right. That's kind of one of those nice things that in most policies is not necessarily specified in terms of you shall search this way. Right. It's where does primary and secondary search fit within the order of operations, obviously knowing life safety is paramount, but there's flexibility there for the department and then the stations and then the crews to kind of, you know, change and alter and, and adapt as they see fit. So. Craig, if if I'm a if I'm an officer, a new officer, or a training officer, which I I am now, um, what's the biggest kind of takeaway from? And and I might ask this, and let me rephrase it a little bit more. Like, uh, and let me even ask you this: Do you guys think that we almost got away from a search in in a way? Like, uh, we had talked about this on a previous podcast that you know all of a sudden everyone started talking about flow pass and and looking at you know uh, reading smoke so much that we you know, do we think we kind of got away from 
search a little bit or do we think that, okay, because our smoke is so volatile now there's, you know, the chance of survival. I mean, is this kind of, I guess what, what really started the, the push to research this, this side of things? Um, well, I, I, I'll speak for myself and then, and, you know, as a non-firefighter, um, you know, I don't want to overstep where, where my expertise begins and ends. Um, but from how we approach research, at least at FSRI, it's always kind of been this, um, you know, we're stacking skills and stacking uh, complexity. So we started, you know, 10, 15 years ago looking at ventilation. And it wasn't just ventilation altogether. It was horizontal ventilation, then vertical ventilation, then positive pressure ventilation. Uh, then we moved into suppression with, with interior and exterior streams. And we kind of put those two together and uh, said, what does the coordinated fire ground look like? So it was all kind of on, on those set of tasks. And now that we had a good handle of, all right, well, this is what, uh, you know, we've learned from all of these other aspects. Now, how do we layer that on search? Um, so if we, you know, think the fire triangle is fuel, heat, and oxygen, the same thing here is search ventilation and suppression. And mm -hmm. so we've just finally got to that third leg. And even then we're on the third leg in single family, single story residential structures. So, you know, it's this, this piece of, you know, it, it would be very easy to overstep as, as, as a research organization and just jump right into the deep end. Um, but the scientific method drives us to say, let's, let's start in incremental pieces and work our way to complexity so that we can one, understand the impact of any given aspect on the fire ground. So if we went right into search and they said, okay, well, now we're going to start breaking some windows. We don't know the true impact of that ventilation effort versus anything else and how they might be connected. So that's kind of how we've gotten there. Um, and, and the other piece is the fire ground continues to change. And so, yeah. you know, we, we talk about the, the volatility, um, you know, in, in you know, last 30 to 40 years, you could say we've changed, you know, from, from natural synthetics, but then in the last four years, we've changed from synthetics to electrified. So, you know, our, our timeline continues to change. And so uh, as much as search has kind of not necessarily been a primary piece from FSRI's output, it's always, it's always been there. We've always had occupant packages. We've always had uh, a piece to try to understand um, you know, what exposures look like both toxic and thermal. Um, and a big piece has always been about the close your door messaging, right? We realized yeah. that that isolation, um, was, was huge. But once we, we put all our efforts in on this series now to understand the larger complexity of search, we realize, yeah, that, that, that happens now, both from a prevention message, um, that same construct applies as, as Keith said, in, you know, one of the biggest takeaways is, that close before you doze is, is close as you're searching, <laughs> you know, close as, as you're doing everything because it's, it's how do we keep that toxic environment off, off the occupants and also, you know, reduce the, the thermal and toxic environment to, to the searching firefighters as well. Yeah. And, and Keith, going back to you, and, and that makes sense, Craig, like from a science standpoint is you're building the foundation and answering these questions as you go. And this is just the, the actual the right sequence is now to go into search now that we know what happens when you open that window, if you're doing VIS, right? Um, and so Keith, I'll, I'll flip it over to you then and say, you know, from, uh, you know, being in the field and seeing just as the research develops, how, how like fire departments kind of adjust to it or don't adjust to it in some cases, you know, now that we, we know this about search, do you think that that'll change the culture the, more to a search culture because of what we found here? 
I think so, and I think we're already starting to see that. <clears throat> so we've struggled over the years um, with how we make sure our messaging gets out uh, and is received in the fire service, trying to get across really, again, that we are doing this building block by building block, right? So when we put out an output that says exterior water is good, that's not the whole story, right? We also need to study interior water and that's to come, right? But as that information's come out, you see various, you know, facets of the fire service and different groups and different departments, you know, latch and grasp onto different things, going so far as to changing SOP and how they operate on the fire ground without necessarily having the whole story, you know, and, and some of that is not necessarily their fault because, hey, this is a body of information that came out. Um, but there's bounds on all of that, right? So I think what we kind of started to see with studying ventilation first, right, is that obviously ventilation without the appropriate application of effective water is going to cause problems. But then you see that have trickle effects like we touched on earlier as it goes out and now touches search and says, oh, well, hey, hold on, we don't vent as we go anymore, right? And it's like, well, no, you should vent as you go if you can isolate, Yeah. right? And then when you take that into suppression, right, all of the studies that were conducted on ventilation needed to have the fires put out, but at the time that wasn't a suppression study. So it was, well, let's put out the fires. Most of the fires got put out with exterior water. So then it was, oh, well, look at how effective exterior water is, right? But so this carries forward into now where exterior water started to be this large sole push for a period of time. And I think, you know, we don't know, it's all anecdotal, but I think that's kind of what led into some of this fire service interest in what would be known as uh, uh, victim survivability or survivability profiling, right? We're gonna, we're gonna go around a structure, we're gonna do a 360, we're gonna identify what spaces are survivable versus not, right? And, and dictate our actions accordingly. Whereas we know the research doesn't support that, right? The research supports that just because there's fire coming out of a window doesn't mean that somebody's not alive on the floor of that very room, right? And now we have, case studies and their video documented, you know, throughout the United States of exactly that. People are being pulled out of spaces that you would have looked at and said, there's no way somebody's alive in this area. And I think that's one of the big benefits is that um, the research now supports that the focus needs to be on searchable space, not survivable space, right? Where can we go to search now? What are our priorities right now? And if a space is not searchable right now by us, what can we do and what actions can we perform to make it searchable as quickly as possible? So I think that's kind of where, where you mentioned about, did we get away from search a little bit? I think there was some hesitation around occupying the building. And uh, I think some of that had derivative back from exterior water in that initial push. And now we've kind of started to more holistically talk about the residential fire ground and, um, you know, really, what can we do on the fire ground to search this building as quickly as possible, which includes effective water? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we've had several articles or videos on this topic recently um, about the search culture and sort of the changes that have happened over the years there. So it's really nice to be able to have this information, the research to back it up as well. Um, Keith, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, in these discussions, there's clearly a lot of nuance. There's clearly a lot of critical thinking that goes into it. If this, then that, if this, then that. How do you, do you bake that mindset into the training to try and get people thinking? Because I, I mean, let's face it, a lot of people like black or white answers, you know? 
it's crystal clear. Like, I want to know when I go in to search. I want to know when I uh, vertically ventilate. But how do you how do you incorporate the nuance and the critical thinking into the training? Sure. Yeah, it's a very good question. So we um, we struggle with that on the daily. Uh, you know, we get a lot of questions that are like, all right, well, you know, if this, then what am I doing? It's like, well, no, I need to know this, 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 and this before I give you an answer. Right. And so it's trying to start, um, as far as training goes, right. I'll try and try and keep it to the original question. As far as training goes, I think it's, you've got to go through a variety of scenarios, right. So that people are starting to think in more of a flow chart mindset than they are a, if this, then that. Right. And specifically regarding search, right, it's not we're going to go in the building, we're going to go closest to where the fire is, we're going to do a left hand search, and that's what we're doing. Right. It's well, what is this? Is this a residential house? Is it one or two stories? Is it two o'clock in the morning? The fire's in the kitchen on the first floor and the bedrooms are on the second. Well, I should probably go up to the second floor and start there first. Right. Is my method of going through the front door in that case the best? Maybe, maybe not. How close is the fire to the front door? Am I quicker to get up into one of those spaces by throwing a ladder up? Uh, can I identify if one of those spaces upstairs is already isolated? Can I shine a flashlight up there and see curtains? And maybe that uh, is indicative of the door being closed. Perfect place to start, right? So it's getting people to think about the ifs and really truly taking them down the rabbit holes of, no, this is not black and white. You know, give me the details about the building, about the fire. When did you get there? What do you know? Right. What are your known knowns? What are your unknown knowns? And what are your unknown unknowns? Yeah. You know, yeah. really yeah. starting to get them in the in the mindset of you have to pause and think about this. And I think it's getting across the message that taking a couple seconds to run through this in your mind is going to save you a lot of time, which will lead to greater survivability at the end of the day. I like how you said that about a flow chart or flow flow chart mindset i think that's yep. that's a really clever way to say it yeah or could or in this case should we say a flow path mindset in a way too <laughs> right like i don't know i think we may maybe we just started something there that you could patent that go ahead and take it but you know um i i like it that's how i think as a truck guy a little bit you know hey, craig let me go back to you a little bit too and um you know from the from the research side the science side what in this last uh, project really surprised you? Uh, that's that's an excellent question. Um, one, I think when you know, there's a couple. Uh, the, the first was when I when we ran the time to task, we had a question on, you know, just anecdotally to the fire service before they went and ran their um, their drills was how long they thought it would take them or how fast they thought they could move occupants, and almost everyone overestimated. Um, because we don't really have a good idea of like truly recognizing speed, right? We, we know in certain areas, right? Like, oh, well, I know what 25 miles an hour in a car is like, but what is one foot per second dragging a 200 pound person look like? Um, we don't have a good reference frame, especially in an environment where you can't see. And so, um, you know, when you or start don't to have a good grip either, right? Like in exactly. some cases, right? Like, hey. They're not, it's not, not like they all have a webbing handle on, on them, you know, our victims don't, it would be nice, but yeah. we're not to that point yet. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the, the big pieces that, that stood out to me was, I mean, we know, you know, we, we title our talk when Keith and I present called it's seconds count. Um, but what does that truly mean? How long, how long do we really, you know, going to take for, for any of these tasks? 
And then, you know, when you start to put yourself in different positions on the fire ground, how long should you expect them to take? And so, you know, when we write our tactical considerations, we don't, we're not writing policy, right? It's not, it's not yeah. prescriptive. It's more about, you know, if you perform this task, these are expectations you should, you know, uh, this is what you should expect to encounter. So if we, if we break a window and isolate the door, you know, fire dynamics tells us, you know, that we're not going to see a lot of flow across that door because pressure is going to move from, from areas of, of high resistance to low resistance, high pressure, low pressure, and they're going to follow the path of least resistance. So if there's some other larger vent and you've got a closed door, you're not going to see a lot of flow around that closed door because all you've got are those, those little gaps around the door. Uh, if you're seeing a lot of smoke still moving in that room, that should tell you, hey, there's something else open. Um, right. There's some other pathway that's connected to this fire department. Maybe that the occupants took down an interior wall. And so this is a double room. Um, you know, um, all of those things start to stack. And so it's it's what is the the expectation versus the reality um, when we talk about, um, you know, time and, and uh, all of our RTCs. Right. So. Uh, that's that's the biggest takeaway is is also trying to craft them all right so so that we are um you know somehow uh teaching fire dynamics without necessarily teaching fire dynamics right <laughs> yeah yeah um and uh yeah so that 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 and then also really the effectiveness um and the need of, of i think hydraulic ventilation um you know we after every every fire we ran hydraulic ventilation whether it was uh smooth bore full bale, smooth bore, half bale, tip on, tip off, narrow fog, wide fog, stationary, rotating, every combination we, we could come up with with our um, different uh, attack packages, we ran. And um, the effectiveness of being able to, you know, clear smoke from a space uh, with hydraulic ventilation was, uh, you know, we, we run a number of experiments over the years with it. Um, but seeing that stacked every time uh, was was wildly impressive. And then it puts the control back in the person that has the tool to do the job. You know, if you do have, now that you're moving all this air, if you do have a, a flare up or some kind, right? Well, then you can just shut down the nozzle or turn it and put the fire out. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's less moving parts involved too, um, because, you know, you don't have someone else that has to now coordinate with the fan and someone who's going to be waiting with the fan and do we have it? Is it off the truck yet? I mean, you've already got the appliance with you on the suppression crew. Um, so you can start to really impact, um, you know, this, the, the movement of smoke. And that's so paramount, right? So, so suppression is going to stop the fire from getting worse, right? That's stopping the hazard. We've, we've removed our thermal threat to, to some degree, but that smoke's still in the space, right? And that smoke is still hazardous. And so we've got to do, you know, the, the, the need for coordination and the need for continued ventilation doesn't end with suppression. Um, and so we, that was another big takeaway was how quickly we were able to clear out a space with, with all of the different variations of hydraulic ventilation. And I think it, it just totally confirms, Hey, that time that over that you were talking about, uh, we overestimate how long it would take. Now that gets better and probably more realistic with more training. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, with that, Keith, I got a training question for you. And this, I think, applies because I, I think one of the things that was mentioned was, you know, closing the loop. And so here's a scenario that I've talked with my training division, and I'm sure others have. So you're doing a, a vent, uh, enter, isolate search, and 
you you vent the, the you know you vent the window you make entry you look and then there's your victim kind of right in front of you do you grab that victim try to get out as quick as can, as you can or get in there try to seal that that room off and then work at removing that victim based on research expertise and and kind of what we were talking about what do you think what do i tell my my training division on this so it uh depends right <laughs> not uh not black and white but in general right, yeah. in general i would say that you're probably better suited to try and isolate if it's readily available right so okay. you've you've ventilated for entry therefore you're already going to start to have gas exchange at the window so you want to limit that if at all possible right so if you can isolate and that's readily available i would do so uh, your next move, if that individual is on the bed, is probably to get them to the floor first while you figure out what the next steps are, right? Or you could flip those if you want. If the person's on the bed and they're in the flow right now, get them on the floor, then go close the door, then come back, establish your whereabouts and figure out whether you're going out the window or you're going to wait there. Um, one thing to throw in real quick on the window ventilation piece, right, is that if you are going to make a vent opening through a window, for example, uh, make that opening as small as you can for your entry, right? Limit the size of that opening. So if you only need to break one pane to get entered into that space, do that. Identify whether you can isolate. If you could have identified that prior to going in or ventilating, that would have been better. But sometimes we know we can't. Sometimes you have to physically be in there or make the vent to see that. So if that's the case, start with the vent small, figure out whether you can isolate. And then once you're isolated, go back and take the whole window. Right, so at that point, get the space cleared out quicker. Um, so that that does bring up a good point. That kind of closing the loop on uh, on our considerations from this. Right, we talked about pre-water application. You want to isolate and then ventilate. All right, and then during and post-water application, you want to de-isolate all those spaces. Right. So think about it in this respect: if you're performing the search, you've committed to that building prior to water. You've gone around, closed all the doors, and opened all the windows. Well, now as the fire starts to go out, you just need to go back and open up those doors that were closed. The windows are already open and those spaces are probably already clear. And then you've got what Craig talked about. The folks that were putting the fire out are immediately doing hydraulic and that building is clear. I mean, a, a large building is clear, you know, less than minutes. Right. So hydraulic ventilation coupled with that ventilation and isolation that you took advantage of before. Right, is kind of your your key to success here and making those spaces survivable and then keeping them that way. Yeah, and to build on, on Keith's point real quick about the the timing, uh, especially when it comes into entering and then isolating. Uh, you know, we did an experiment where we had a fire where we entered directly across the hall from a fire, and uh, you know we broke the window. We don't isolate that door, and we drew fire across the hall in about ninety seconds. And okay. so you know, proximity to entry point, uh, whether you're on plane, off plane, all those things matter. Um, but then it's also how long is it going to take you as a department to get that occupant from if they're on the bed down to the ground, over to the window, up to the sill? What is your removal path? Is it a ladder? Is it to another first floor window, right? What is your access on the other side? So when all of those things, you know, keep adding up, if you can isolate, you've bought yourself minutes versus seconds, um, potentially even longer. So um it's recognizing all of those those components is again it's not a prescriptive oh just absolutely do this because um you know you have to read the entire scenario and then also what is the timeline of suppression are they down the hall ready to flow water 
So if they're already starting to flow water when you're entering, then you've bought, you know, you've got way more time. Maybe your move should be to move the occupant. So it's this full kind of continuing recognition of where you are on the spectrum of the of the scenario. Um, and then also what your resources are and what your 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 personal skill level is uh, in terms of you know being able to do this. Is this occupant 20 pounds, 100 pounds, 220 pounds? Uh, all those things matter uh, when it comes to, to trying to do this, which is why we don't typically talk in absolutes. It's here's the cause and effect. Here's here's the you know if you perform this action, here's how the fire dynamics are going to change based on what you just did, right? Whether that's ventilation or suppression or isolation. Yeah, you're talking about critical thinking. You're talking about sizing up. You're talking about knowing your territory. Um, and uh, and these are things that we we talked about kind of, obviously, these are the fundamentals of, of um, you know, uh, of, of everything, right, on the fire ground. And, and now I think what, what, you know, kind of just confirming what you guys are saying is, yeah, all these different things. And, and as, you know, a training officer, as a, a, a chief officer, you know, Keith, like what's the, how do you, how do you tell your firefighters or what's the best way to teach your firefighters to take all this into account? You know, how do you approach this and say, you know, it's not a one size fits all like we were talking about, but are there any activities that you you think of that, that helps kind of bring this all together? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> what we found is successful is it's very easily to, it's very easy to get turned off by the amount of information and the ability to kind of uh, go through all those different scenarios, right? As we talked about, everybody wants the black and white answer, especially when you're in that time compressed, uh, high risk situation where you've got to make a decision now. Uh, and it's trying to get people to understand the motivation behind taking a couple seconds to work through that. So really kind of in general, at least the way I personally approach it is, uh, emphasizing to people that this information is there to make them better at their job and more aggressive, right? So everybody knows the fire service culture, right? People should be taking research and utilizing that to be more aggressive while at the same time being safer and more efficient, right? And specifically this project, it's search and rescue. So how can we be there the best for the victim in the quickest way possible? And then should we find somebody, what's our best method to deal with that? It's like a, it's a calculated aggression, correct? Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, and I just want to, I just want to note real quick that we will include the link to the fire safety Academy, um, and the specific training called, um, search and rescue tactics and single family, single story residential structures. We'll put that in the show notes, uh, keep any other, uh, final considerations. Sure. Well, uh, we'll finish it off with rescue, right? So we covered search. So now say you find somebody, right? The short and sweet there is uh, low and fast. And then there's caveats. Are they coming back out the way we entered, right? Potentially, potentially not. That depends on suppression timing and what the conditions look like, right? Are we in a space that can be isolated like we talked about? Maybe the first move is to isolate, right? If the fire is not yet knocked down, Maybe you need to isolate, create that place of refuge and hang tight, whether it be going out a window or waiting until the conditions in the structure improve to get them out, right? Sometimes taking those couple extra seconds to work through that thought process in your mind is going to have the most positive impact on the victim. So low and fast with some considerations. Perfect way to summarize it. Yeah, that's one of the most important parts. You found them. Now you got to get them out, yeah. right? And and, and that, that that comes back to that critical thinking. 
So Craig, I'm going to go back one more thing. Anything that we missed, is there any, any like particular data or time set that just you want to make sure everybody is aware of? Uh, you had mentioned, you know, we overestimate some of the, the times that we think that we could search, but, but is there any, any kind of juicy uh, data set that you, that you really want to uh, want us to, to understand from this? Um, well, one, uh, the first is a plug. Um, we're releasing all the time to task sheets as part of the course. So if you look in the course resources, when you take the course, all of our time to task sheets are there. Um, and if folks want to go back to the departments, complete them and then send them to us. Um, you know, the, the big piece is that makes our data even stronger for the next series. It helps us interpret all of this stuff. And in particular, when you look at the, the uh, either in the reports or the training course, especially when it comes to rescue, we aren't using a single number in terms of, of what it means to remove somebody. We're looking at um, a range of speeds. So we looked at the, the technical panel data and, and pulled the 25th and 75th percentile speeds at which they you know, brought back data to us. And so now this gives us a, a, a band, so to speak, and say, well, now if you go back and run your time to task and you, you're at, say, uh, one foot per second in terms of a removal speed, that's the 75th percentile. So that's you're faster than 75% of, of the folks who so far have submitted data. And now that gives you a metric to perform too. I mean, a lot of our times that we have are prescriptive. It's, you know, 80 seconds for, for turnout or call processing, all these different things. But when it comes to actual fire ground tasks, we don't necessarily know exactly what we should be shooting towards. And the more data we get from you, uh, the American Fire Service, the better we can we can be trying to pin down what does that actually look like? So what is the 25th percentile? What is the 75th percentile? Where do you sit? So that when you run all these, these scenarios now, where should we focus our training on? Where are deficiencies? And where, where can we buy that extra bit of time? Um, because that's really what matters when we're, when we're after uh, you know, the ultimate goal of, of saving lives. Awesome. So we can help you. We yes. can be part of the team in Absolutely. a way. And, and of course, uh, and I'm sure Keith, you can, can second this is that any challenge or time sometimes, uh, you know, that that's, we, we like challenges in the fire service and different crews and different people will take that to heart. I, I imagine Keith, have you tried some of these or do you run them with your crews? Pretty, pretty uh, we've regular. tried them in terms of, uh, forcible entry and, uh, also just kind of standard room searches. And just like you talk about the fire service is typically made up by one type of individual. <laughs> and uh, and we all like competition, so it works well. Awesome. We'll post all that stuff. Um, you guys, thanks. This, this is unbelievable information. Um, again, we will post links to how they get uh, can get involved and help the research, number one, where they can see and, and find more. But you guys aren't done yet. We, we do some fun stuff here. Um, actually, I mean, besides talk about this, because I think we could probably have talked all day. And again, thank you guys for your time, because I was exhausted just reading your bios and how much you guys are involved in this. But uh, we have some hot seat questions. Uh, we were talking off camera. Of course, they come from my mom and Janelle's mom and uh, some of our listeners. Uh, just kind of some fun stuff. Um, and Janelle's got some good ones for you to start it off. All right. Let's start with Keith. What was your favorite subject in school growing up? Hmm. Well, believe it or not, it wouldn't have been math. <laughs> um, probably shop. <laughs> school, high school. And I got into the, the fire service in high school. So my senior year of high school was actually going to the fire academy every day and getting uh, through fire one, fire two, trucks, hazmat and all that. So if that counts, it would be that. 
Very cool. cool. Well, and Craig, I've got the flip of this question for you. What was your least favorite subject in school? Uh, probably, uh, probably English. <laughs> um, I realize now I write way more than I ever expected to, but um, I definitely did not enjoy that growing up. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, buddy. Um, Craig, going back to you, who's the biggest data junkie on the team? Craig. Uh, probably me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, which, which, so that if I said, what's your, what was your favorite subject in, in school? Uh, calculus. Okay. There we go. That makes sense then. Of yep. course. Okay. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Just made sense. All right, Keith, I want to know what project you are most proud of from your time at FSRI. Suppression. <clears throat> so, uh, it's kind of funny, you know, my, my career in the fire service so far has been solely focused on rescue, right? Whether it's technical rescue or search and rescue and fires, we don't have an engine company at our department, right? We're, we're within the larger system. Our focus is heavy rescue. Uh, yet suppression is kind of uh, established as my sweet spot here. And it's what I'm most passionate about and enjoy teaching and learning more about. So kind of ironic in that respect. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's, it's good. You got to, you have to, um, you know, work on those things that you're not necessarily comfortable with. Right. And, uh, sure. and that's how you really make yourself better. And, and speaking of that, uh, personally, like you guys, um, have, have the contributions you, you have made both personally and, and as a group to the fire services, um, has, it, it's never been done. I don't think before because of how, how all these changes are happening and how you guys are really able to, to take that, that research side and data and apply it. Um, but with that comes a lot of challenges with you personally. Uh, and so the, my question goes back to you, what are you personally doing to continue your drive motivation and to get better? And uh, Craig, I'll start with you. Um, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, you know, we, we kind of have this, this phrase here that this, this is a lifestyle, not a job. Um, you know, much like, you know, folks who are really passionate about the fire service and, I'll say what, what, what continues to motivate me is, is, you know, talking to folks like yourselves, um, working with the tech panel or, or basically any time that I get to interact with, with the American fire service. Um, you know, it, it's, it's probably the easiest group of people to want to support, uh, of any group, uh, you know, in the country. So it makes it very easy to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go the extra mile because it's, it's, it's supporting the fire service. Great. Keith, what do you, uh, what are you working on right now? How do you, how do you make yourself, uh, how do you keep yourself motivated and better? Yeah. I mean, in general, I would echo Craig's comments, right? So it's, it's leaning into and embracing the notion of this is work we're doing with the fire service, not for the fire service. Right. And it's, it's letting that drive us forward and that we are all here for the same end goal and knowing that along the way, you're going to take some hits because you're not always going to be the most popular guy in the room. You're not always going to be saying what uh, individuals want to hear. And a lot of times you're going to be met with resistance in terms of, well, I don't have experience that, that uh, aligns with this. And then it's taking the extra time to not be dismissive of that comment, but to get them up to speed and understand why that might have been the case, right? Because there's an answer there. And one of the things that we always lean on is that, you know, we're not, pre we're not presenting opinions, we're presenting facts. So if there's something that doesn't jive with what you've seen, felt, or heard, then let's talk about it. 
And so really just leaning into that notion and relationship of this is a, a collaboration, right? We're not working for, we're working with. And if we don't have the answer, we'll go set something on the on fire to find out. There you go. <laughs> yeah, right. And actually do it in a in a data in oh, a uh, yeah. in, in a calculated fashion because we in the fire service have done that before. Keith's smiling because he's been involved with us since high school, so he's he's probably set more fires than you have, Craig. It's just it's not the uh, all the measurements and stuff there, the data sources. But um, it brings up a, a great kind of summarizing point that this is research that needs to be talked about critically and and um and hopefully those that are listening took that from all the the great stuff you gave us is that take this back have the conversations at the firehouse um you know challenge you guys with questions um reach out to you and what's the best way they can reach you guys by the way craig uh email and i can you guys can can have that in the in the bio or in the show notes um I might not get back immediately, but I'll always respond. Perfect. Keith? Yeah, much of the same. And, uh, you know, folks folks can always reach out, email, phone, any of the sort. And uh, if there's a delay in response, it's just because we're moving 90 miles a minute, but a response will come. Yeah. Well, thank, again, uh, thank you guys again for your time, for your passion, for your motivation. Uh, again, reach out with questions, have these discussions, um, and, and make sure that you're using all this information to um, you know, make yourselves better. Most importantly, everybody, make sure you learn something, do something, and share something to make you and those around you better every shift. Thanks for listening.